Good morning again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 4? Our study in John's Gospel has brought us to chapter 4, where we have been studying a woman of Samaria who desired to worship God but didn't know where to go to find him, as if God was limited to a location. She asked Jesus a question in verse 20, basically, where can I go to find God? And that question set the stage for Jesus to teach her and all of us about the nature of true worship. Jesus tells her that worship of, and I'm reviewing, Jesus tells her that the worship of God isn't a matter of locality. It's a matter of the heart. Then he proceeds to tell her in verse 23, the hour is coming and now is. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Worship is a subject that permeates and dominates the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Now, before we get into this, let me just start by sharing with you a true story. This happened a number of years ago, actually probably in the 80s at that time, but I've kept it in my notes all these years. Um, other similar stories have happened since then. I just read one the other day that was kind of similar. But um, true story that helps to kind of um, demonstrate how ignorant some people are with regard to true worship. And uh, the author uh, who is sharing this said, and I quote, a few years ago, the Chicago Tribune reported the story of a New Mexico woman who was frying tortillas when she noticed that the skillet burns on one of her tortillas resembled the face of Jesus. Excited, she showed it to her husband and neighbors, and they all agreed. There was a face etched on the tortilla and that it truly bore a resemblance to Jesus. So the woman went to her priest to have the tortilla blessed. She testified that the tortilla had changed her life, and her husband agreed that she had been a more peaceful, happy, submissive wife ever since the tortilla had arrived. The priest, not accustomed to blessing tortillas, was somewhat reluctant, but agreed to do it. The woman took the tortilla home, put it in a glass case with piles of cotton to make it look like it was floating on clouds, built a special altar for it, and opened the little shrine to visitors. Within a few months, more than 8,000 people came to the shrine of Jesus of the tortilla. And all of them agreed that the face in the burn marks on the tortilla was the face of Jesus, except for one reporter who said he thought it looked like former heavyweight boxing champion Leon Spinks. Well, there's always one infidel in the group. Anyway, guys, never has a subject been so important while at the same time been so misunderstood as has the subject of worship. As we've already said, the subject of worship permeates and dominates the Bible. In the Old Testament, worship covered every area of the lives of God's people. It was the focus for all they did. For example, the tabernacle was designed and laid out specifically to emphasize the priority of worship to the nation. The description of its details requires, listen, seven chapters and 243 verses in the book of Leviticus. When you realize that only 31 verses are in the book of Genesis are devoted to the entire creation of the world, well, you get a pretty good idea of how important worship is to God. The tabernacle was the place where God's people came to worship Him. 
In the tabernacle, there were no seats. They didn't go there to attend a service, and they certainly didn't go there to be entertained. They went there to worship God, and if they had to have a service or a a meeting somewhere, they went somewhere else. The very arrangement of the camp was designed by God to emphasize the centrality of worship again to the nation. The tabernacle was always in the center. Whenever the Shekinah glory moved, the camp of Israel moved. When it stopped, they would set up camp. And the tabernacle was always in the center, and immediately next to it were the priests who led worship. A little farther out were the Levites who uh, were professional servants of God. They got involved in the service of the worship services. Beyond that were all the tribes of Israel camped three to the north, three to the south, three to the east, three to to the west, all facing inward towards the center where the tabernacle was standing. In the book of Deuteronomy, we see the greatest commandment God ever gave to his people affirmed by Jesus in the New Testament to be the greatest. It comes out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, where God said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Guys, this was God's call to his people to worship him, not with animal sacrifices or rituals, but with all their hearts and with their entire lives. Now, as we've already stated, there was a great deal of confusion. There is a great deal of confusion today with regard to worship, as it was in Jesus' day, concerning what really constituted true worship. And since Jesus said that true worship and true worshipers were what the Father was seeking, it becomes vitally important that we as God's people understand what it means to be true worshipers and offer up to him true worship. As we said last time, many religious people are guilty of worshiping a God they really don't know in a way that is unacceptable to him. It's what some have called do-it-yourself worship. A lot of this going on today. In that regard, they are very much like the Samaritans, whom Jesus indicted for offering God ignorant and unacceptable worship when he said to the Samaritan woman, you, and the you is plural in the Greek, you and your people worship what you do not know, John 4 22. But listen to me. Even many Christians are ignorant as to the purpose for which they were created and redeemed, which is to be true worshipers. The primary reason we come together on Sunday morning, Wednesday night, or any other time as Christians, listen, the purpose for all the Bible studies, fellowship time, prayer meeting, and music, it's all designed to prod your heart to worship God. Maybe you didn't realize that. It's all designed to prod your heart to worship God. Everything we do as a church is designed to make you a more effective worshiper of him. In other words, to help you to give to God what he desires from you. What can you give God that he needs? Nothing. What can you give him that he wants? He wants your love and worship. And yet I'm afraid that most people come to church for what they can get. I've met many Christians over the years who who run from church to church, looking to be blessed because in their mind the Christian life is really all about them and what they can get from God in the way of blessings. Can I just be honest with you and direct? If you've come to church or if you come to church regularly or this morning to get, you've missed the whole point because we're here to worship God. That's not getting, it's giving. Christians who constantly miss church for one reason or another and say, well, I can get what I need from the internet or from the CD or from our church's app. Well, 
they don't understand the goal of what the Christian life really is. Same is true for those people who constantly come in late for service, thinking that they have, you know, an extra half hour because it's only worship time, the filler before the message. Look, the purpose for which we gather together is to worship God. And again, that's all about giving to him what he desires, not getting from him what we want that will bless us. However, that's not the mindset of most of today's churchgoers. One author, I think, uh, summed it up when he said, and I quote, Sadly, so many of our churches reflect a faith in consumerism instead of in Jesus. Often the mindset of churchgoers is, what will this church offer me? What kind of programs do they have that cater to me? What am I going to get out of this deal? End quote. Let me define worship for you. And as I just said, given all the confusion and misunderstanding in the church today as to what it is, it's not as easy to define as you might think. Let's take a shot at it, okay? Worship means to give homage, respect, honor, reverence, and or adoration to someone who is a superior being. Now, in the Bible, the word wasn't used uh, exclusively of the true and living God. It was used or is used for the worship of given to kings, idols, even material things. It's obvious to any of us who have been paying attention that people can worship many things other than the true and living God. The most common New Testament word for worship is proskuneo, which literally means to kiss toward. And it came out of the ancient custom of kissing the hand of a superior as when you would kiss the hand of a king, a dignitary, or if you were a slave, your master. It was also used to convey the idea of bowing down or prostrating yourself. To prostrate yourself would mean to lie face first on the ground, and you did this in the presence of a king or somebody that in your mind was superior to you in rank and authority and so on. The word was also used to convey the idea of bowing down or prostrating oneself on the ground before a superior as a sign of total submission. Now guys, in the Christian context, we simply apply all of this into our relationship with God. Essentially then, worship is giving to God honor, respect, reverence, do him as a superior being. It is also bowing down our life before him in total surrender and submission. Now, that is why we gather. That is why we gather. We gather because we want to submit our lives more and more to God's control because he is worthy of our entire allegiance and submission and so on. We're defining worship. Sometimes it helps to define what something is not before we define what it is. Let me, let me do that. What biblical worship is not, okay? This may floor you. It's not music and singing. It's not music and singing. While it's true, music and singing can accompany worship and be a beautiful part of it, these by themselves are not worship. Why do I say that? Because I'll give you one example out of the Old Testament during a time of sin and national idolatry in Israel's history, as they continued to worship God, quote-unquote, the Lord said, Amos 5.23, Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. 
God is telling them, you know what? All your so-called worship of singing and praise is empty. Your hearts are not for me. Your, your hearts are against me. Jesus rebuked the hypocritical religious leaders of Israel when he said in Matthew 15, verses 8 and 9. I'm just going to have you write these references down. We've got too many to, for you to turn to. But here's what we quoted this last week. Here's what Jesus said to the so-called religionists, religionists, religionists people uh, in his day. He said, these people draw near to me with their mouth they, they, and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Listen, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Guys, as we can see from these verses, music and singing without the proper heart attitude does not constitute acceptable worship in God's eyes. Well, worship is also not emotion. You know, some people see a display of emotion in the worship service as proof that worship is taking place. I mean, certain kinds of worship music, because of the beautiful, you know, melodies and lyrics, give them a rush of emotion. They get goosebumps, goosebumps perhaps, shed a few tears, and they feel that they are truly worshiping God. The fact is that the same style or mood of music with words that are kind of totally unrelated to God could evoke the same kind of emotional response in us, like certain secular love songs. Or, I've told you this when I was a kid, you know, going back a ways, uh, you know, Peter, Paul, and Mary puffed the magic dragon. When that song came on the radio and little Jackie died and Puff went back into his cave never to be seen again because he was so brokenhearted, I dissolved into tears every time. I wasn't worshiping God, obviously. And while it's true that many times we are, when we are truly worshiping the Lord, we might experience a rush of emotion accompanied by tears. Listen, emotion in and of itself doesn't necessarily mean that true worship is taking place. All right, what, what is biblical worship? Okay, we, we looked at what it is. What is it? Well, again, to just you know, repeat what we just uh, talked about, first of all, it's reverencing God. Reverencing God. As we've already said, the most common word in the New Testament as we apply it into our relationship with God means to give him honor, respect, adoration, and the glory due his awesome name. All true worship, guys, begins in the heart. And that really is where reverence and honor for God begins. Now listen to me. This inward heart attitude, if it's there, will inevitably lead to outward life actions. The first is that it will lead to a sacrificing of self in service to God. It's interesting that to me that the very first time the worship appears in the Bible, now hear me out. In hermeneutics, which is the science of Bible interpretation, there is something called the law of first mention. Wherever you see a major concept like worship or marriage or something else appear in the Bible, wherever it appears the first time to study that passage, it becomes the prototype for understanding that concept all the way through the Word. It's interesting to me that the very first time the word worship appears in the Bible, Genesis 22, verse 5, it isn't associated with singing, it's associated with sacrifice. Let me read it to you. And Abraham said to the young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad, uh, uh, Isaac, and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. 
The context is God told Abraham to take his son, the son he loved and had waited for 25 years for God to fulfill his promise, to give him and Sarah a son. They were barren. Finally, this son is born. 33 years later, God says, take this young man, three-day journey to Mount Moriah, and there offer him to me as a sacrifice. And this is the context. They got to the base of Mount Moriah, and uh, they started to go up the mount. And uh, Abraham said, we're going to go and worship the Lord. I'm going to sacrifice my son Isaac to God. And he says, we'll be back. There's a whole thing about that. Get our study from Romans 4. Okay. God, you promised me through this kid I'm going to have more more descendants than the stars of heaven. This kid isn't even married yet. He doesn't have child one. If you want me to kill him, I'll do it. You're going to have to raise him from the dead to fulfill your promise. And it was based on that that God accounted Abraham's faith righteousness. But, But anyways, worship. Abraham was about to make the ultimate sacrifice. He was going to sacrifice his son to God. Who didn't want child sacrifice? Never, you know, he stopped him. He never would allow him to go through it. Nowhere does God ever condone child sacrifice and so on. But he was making a point that worship is all about sacrificing the most precious things that we have for God. We see another verse in Romans 12, verse 1. You have to turn to it. I'll just read it to you. We talked about this last week too, but in Romans 12, verse 1, under the title of sacrificing ourself as a form of worship, Paul said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. The New King James has it. The phrase reasonable service is the Greek phrase lagakon latreon and could be translated literally spiritual worship, and that's how the NIV has it. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Why are the translations seem like they're kind of contradicting a little bit? They're not contradicting. The, the word that, that they're drawing from, or Paul is drawing, it's a word that was used of the Levite service for God, which was a form of worship. And so the translators are trying to combine the two ideas inherent in one concept or one phrase. Lagakon latran, it means spiritual service, which equals spiritual worship. And so some of the translations will have either one or the other. I think some of them may have both. But Paul the Apostle is telling us, guys, that true spiritual worship often occurs as we give God, listen, our whole lives as living sacrifices to be used by him for his glory. And again, what's in view is total submission and surrender. That's why Jesus said, before you follow me, you better count the cost. Salvation is free. It's going to cost you everything to follow me. All right. And then I'll give you one more. In 2 Samuel 24, verses 24 and 5, here's the context. David had decided to number the people. Well, here's the problem with that. Uh, You only number what belongs to you, right? When my daughter was in college, you know, and we got her all settled in, we had her put her name on all the stuff that we bought her for her to use in school, all right? Uh, We didn't start putting her name on her roommate's stuff. I didn't start, start counting on her roommate's, you know, things. You only number what belongs to you. Those people didn't belong to David. Apparently, he got to a point where he began to think, it's all mine. So he had the people numbered and God judged the nation because of the sins of their king. 
And a plague hit, an angel actually began to kill the people, and David cried out to God and said, Lord, these sheep have done nothing wrong, it's me. Lay it on me. And God directed David to build a, a, an altar and offer him sacrifices. So David went to Aruna, who owned the threshing floor on top of Mount Moriah, and uh, offered to buy it for money that he might build this uh, altar and sacrifice to God. Aruna said, King, I give it to you. It's yours. Take, take, the, take the land, take the oxen, uh, the cart you t for a burnt offering. I give it all to you. And David said, no, I will give you money for it because I will not give to my God an offering which cost me nothing. There is a very important principle with regard to worship. If worship is going to be precious to God, it has to be costly to us. To offer God, you know, junk, to offer God the end of my day for a few minutes because I need to spend a little time before I drop off to sleep, after I've done everything I want to do, spent my money and all that I want to buy, and whatever you know, few bucks left I have, I'll give it to God maybe, or maybe I won't. Uh, and then we come and we offer him these things, thinking we're worshiping him. And God says, I see your heart. I see your heart. So... Worship is referencing God, number one. It's sacrificing self, number two. Number three, it's giving to those in need. In Philippians 4, verses 17 and 18, we read, Paul said, I don't say this because I want a gift from you. Rather, I want you to receive a reward for your kindness. Now, Paul has been uh, asking them, uh, the Gentile churches, for a, an offering for the church in Jerusalem that was going through a famine and some other things. But... During the course of this thing, the Philippians not only gave for the offering, they also gave money to Paul so that he could go full-time again and, and really serve the Lord without being a tent maker. And Paul is acknowledging this. He said, Rather, I want you to receive a reward for your kindness. At the moment, I have all need and more. I am generously supplied with the gifts you sent me with, with Epaphroditus. They are a sweet-smelling sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to God. Listen, Paul here is writing to Philippians, again, in part to thank them for the gift that they had given him for his ministry. He calls their gift, and I'm quoting now, a sweet-smelling sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to God. That's the language of worship, guys, in the Old Covenant, when God uh, you know, instituted the worship system, he told his people what animals they could offer him and when, sometimes sin offering, sometimes fellowship offering, so on. He told them specifically what animals they could offer to him that he would accept and what they couldn't, unclean, they couldn't offer to God. But he said when they would put the animal on the altar of sacrifice, it would begin to be burned to him. He, he likened it to, to the aroma coming into his nostrils, a sweet-smelling aroma, a sweet-smelling offering. Well, who doesn't like the smell of barbecue? But, uh, you know, but the, that's, that's the language of worship. God is accepting something. It's pleasant in his nostrils, so to speak, uh, because it's, it honors him. It's being done according to what he has prescribed. It's not do-it-yourself worship where you just do whatever you want. When they followed God's exact instructions and offered him animals that were clean, with a right heart, God says, ah, it's, 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 very, it's beautiful to me. It's, a, how do you put it again? A sweet-smelling sacrifice to me. 
Look, giving someone a gift of money to help them in time of need is, is to give to God an acceptable sacrifice that ascends to him like a sweet-smelling aroma, again, the fragrance of worship. And guys, this is especially true when it comes to supporting ministries, because that's what the Philippians were doing. It doesn't have to be limited to that. But uh, that's what happens when we give of our money to missions or even to the work of the local church. When we give of our, you know, God has been so good to us. And to say thank you, we say, Lord, you know, I just want to give back to you. Uh, I can't go to the mission field. I have a heart, though, for, you know, the, to reach those people for you. I can't go there physically. I can pray, though. And I can support them through my offerings to you. And uh, God says, I see that. I see your heart, and to me, that's a form of worship. In Luke chapter 21, verses 1 to 4, Jesus is in the temple, uh, in the court of the women, where these um, large trumpet-shaped offering boxes were. You know, you, you, you've heard Jesus say, don't sound the trumpet like the hypocrites when you give to God, right? Well, it, it comes out of that practice. In the, in the court of the women, where the men were allowed to, to congregate as well, they had these trumpet-shaped offering boxes. Now, in those days, the coins, depending on how much they were, uh, would, would weigh more, right? I mean, the more a coin, the value was inherent in the coin. Not like today, you take a piece of metal, stamp a 25 cents on it, and it's supposed to be worth 25 cents. But it really inherently is worth nothing. But in those days, they had silver coins, gold coins, and so on, and the copper coins. And uh, depending on how much the coin was worth was depending on how much it weighed, right? So if you were a wealthy guy and you wanted to let people know, well, look, look at me, how generous I am, so I can show everybody how spiritual I am. You take some heavy coins, and you go to one of these trumpet uh, offering boxes, and you would throw the coins in, and bang, bang, bang. And of course, depending on how loud the bang you put, people, wow, he just gave a lot of money. Well, here comes a widow. She had nothing. She puts in two mites. The Greek word is lepta, uh, which means thin. They were together worth about an eighth of a penny. It was nothing. It's all she had, though. And she put it into the offering box. And Jesus said, I tell you a truth. This poor widow has given more than these all. Because they gave out of their abundance. She, out of her poverty, she gave everything. When it comes to worship, guys, it's not how much you give, but how much it costs you to give. Let me illustrate. For some people who have a decent amount of money, they're not hurting financially. For them to write a check for a thousand bucks, wow. But it doesn't really cost them much. They don't have to give up any meals or anything in a way of, I'm not putting that down. Please, I'm not putting that down. Uh, I'm just saying, maybe for that person, to give of their time in the service of God, to teach a Sunday school class, or to be an usher, a greeter, or something like that. That is more of a sacrifice than just writing a check for money. We have to ask ourselves, Lord, I want to offer you my life. How can I do it in a way that it, it, it costs me something? Now, that's, that's a prayer that you're not going to pray, probably unless you're really spirit-filled and walking with the Lord. Because carnal Christians don't think that way. For a carnal Christian, it's all about what God's going to give to me. Somebody who's filled with the Spirit, mature, well, they're going to have a different mindset. Lord, how can I give to you? 
I'm not look, I didn't come here to, to get from you. You always give me. My purpose, though, is to give to you. What can I give to you in the way of my resources that will really show that I, I, want, to, I, want, to, I want to cost me something to serve you? All right, number four, we're defining true worship, and it also falls into the category of loving other Christians. In Romans chapter 14, verse 18, we read, Paul said, For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. And again, guys, whenever you read that if we do something you know, that is talked about in Scripture, when we do that, we offer God something acceptable, that's the language of worship. That's the language of worship. It's an acceptable offering. That's what true worship is all about. What things is Paul talking about in Romans 14 that are accept, an acceptable offering to God? Well, you can read the whole chapter on your own, but uh, in chapter 14 of Romans, uh, the whole chapter deals with not making a weaker brother stumble, not grieving a brother, not destroying a brother, and not judging a brother or sister, of course. Paul is saying that if we are obedient in these things, and hold other Christians in esteem, treating them with love, respect, kindness, consideration. Listen, in God's eyes, this is actually a form of worship that is acceptable and well-pleasing to Him. Look, worship is all about honoring God. We just said that. And we do that in part when we honor one another who, listen, are members of His body, the body of Christ. We are all members of the body of Christ. When I honor you, I'm honoring Jesus. When I treat you with love and kindness, I'm treating Jesus that way. Whatever you do for the least of these, my brethren, what? You do for me. We should really take that to heart. Because the devil has worked in the hearts of a lot of Christians, and churches are often places where people are gossiped about, uh, stabbed in the back. Uh, I know that some Christians have treated other Christians with less respect and kindness than some of the people in the world would treat them. Loving other Christians. And I'll give you one more. This may surprise you. Winning the lost. In Romans 15, verses 15 and 16, we read, Paul speaking, Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God that the offering of the Gentiles to God might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So here Paul is thanking God for his grace that called him into the ministry and then he makes a remarkable statement. He said that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And Paul is saying that his ministry of winning souls for God, the bulk of which were Gentiles. He wanted to go to his Jewish brethren, but they always rejected him, got some to the Gentiles. So the bulk of Paul's converts were Gentiles. That's what he's talking about. And how that he was offering these Gentile converts to God as a form of worship, listen, that he acknowledges God joyfully received and accepted. That's a beautiful way to think of evangelism. Every time you're used by God to win somebody to Christ, it's an offering to him of worship. And so to conclude, biblical worship is reverencing God in our heart and with our lives. It's sacrificing self and service to God. It's giving to those in need, including giving to ministries uh, that need our support. 
It's loving other Christians. It's winning the lost. Guys, this is what, it's, what it means to worship God in truth, John 4.23. People will worship God in all kinds of strange ways, offering him tortillas and uh, walking barefoot on streets uh, of broken glass to, to punish themselves and ingratiate themselves with God as worship. No, that is not true worship. It's not what God has prescribed. And as we do these things, we put God on display. We honor him in the eyes of the people of this world. And that's what it means to glorify him, to put him on display in our lives, which again is a form of worship because we are honoring him, we are exalting him, and so on. Now, listen as we wrap this up. This is, this is very important. Worship doesn't make you a worshiper. You worship because you are a worshiper. Just like the apples on a tree don't make it an apple tree, they just prove that it is one. What makes a person a worshiper is that they have been born again or born of the Spirit. Guys, this is exactly what Jesus was referring to in John 4, 23, when he told the Samaritan woman that the worship the Father was seeking was, first of all, in spirit. In spirit. Which means a person is born of the Spirit, born again. The instant a person receives Jesus as their Lord and Savior by faith, at that instant they are connected to God, the Spirit of God fills them, and the life of God begins to flow through them. The result is the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 and 3, starts to grow in their lives, proving, proving that they are now a new creation in Christ. In other words, a true worshiper. Jesus said you will know them by their fruit. You will know who belong to me by their fruit. The fruit demonstrates that we are children of God. Listen to me. The fruit doesn't make you a child of God. Some people have this backwards, okay? The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, you know, that whole list out of Galatians 5. Some people think, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to act that way because then I'll become a good Christian. Well, the fruit doesn't make you a Christian. It only bears witness that you are one, that you are born of the Spirit, that you are now a child of God. Look, you can tie apples onto an oak tree. It's not going to make it an apple tree. A lot of people come to church and they tie onto themselves spiritual fruit. Oh, they're very loving, very kind, joyful. It's all manufactured. Uh, they, they've done some remarkable things with uh, fake fruit these days. You know, I mean, you, you look at this stuff, and if it's in a store, I've seen fake fruit that looks real, right? Some people are very good at counterfeiting the fruit of the Spirit. They're very good at putting on a, a show, uh, a front, we might say. And they tie these, this fake spiritual fruit onto themselves as they come into church. But listen to me, that won't make them a Christian any more than coming to church and singing songs that God makes you a true worshiper. It's the relationship with Jesus that causes God's life to flow into and then through a child of God, producing spiritual fruit. This is such an important subject, Jesus takes a whole chapter to deal with it in John 15. That is a phenomenal chapter. I can't wait till we get to it in five or six years. Uh, anyway, so, but listen without, listen, without that relationship, being connected to God through Jesus Christ, born again, 
Without that, listen to me, and I'm talking to the people of the world now, a person has to draw strength, joy, peace, purpose, all the things that make life livable. They have to draw these things from their circumstances, personal experiences, material possessions, and including, and especially from things like alcohol and drugs. I mean, look it. If you don't have any joy in your life, what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to buy myself a new toy. How about peace? Well, I'll have to have a cocktail. You have to manufacture it, right? And that only lasts so long. Even for the rich and the famous, because guys, look, you can only buy so much, uh, go so many places, um, do so many drugs before everything crashes down. I'm sure you heard that on this past Friday, another celebrity committed suicide, Anthony Bourdain. Bourdain was the Emmy-winning host of the culinary travel show known as Parts Unknown. He hanged himself in his hotel room in France. Bourdain's suicide followed the suicide of fashion designer Kate Spade three days earlier on Tuesday. Spade hanged herself in her New York apartment. Of course, we all remember the tragic death of Robin Williams, who died in August of 2014. Williams also hanged himself. Why are all these rich celebrities, and there are others, committing suicide? I think most people consider fame and wealth to be the very definition of happiness and fulfillment. Well, apparently not. And as Christians, we know it's not. In fact, we know. It's nothing more than a lie spawned in the councils of hell to get people to pursue everything other than God in an attempt to find happiness and fulfillment. And so if they, to get them away from God, he'll send them down a path where they're, you know, they're, they're pursuing fame and wealth, and they, some people get it. But when it can't fulfill the emptiness and the loneliness, and it can't, whatever they've acquired, can't take away the, the gnawing lack of, joy and peace and whatever, well, then Satan pushes these folks to commit suicide. It's what Jesus called Matthew 12, 13, verse 22, the deceitfulness of riches. That happiness is found in how much I possess. That is one of the biggest lies Satan has ever fed the human race. Why? Because it works. People have bought into that. Most people never reach fame and, and uh, fortune. So they're still pursuing it. That gives them some purpose in life. Those people that have achieved it, well, after all the years of pursuing after fame, fortune, and so on, and they're still as empty and miserable and lonely and unhappy and, as ever. If you don't want to turn to God, what are you going to do? You're going to commit suicide. The CDC has reported, Centers for Disease Control, has recently come out with a report that says that suicide rates are up 30% since 1999. And 10% of that since Robin Williams' death in 2014. Guys, it's occurring, and I've done some research on this, it's occurring all across this, the country in all demographics and age groups starting from age 10. 10-year-olds 10 committing suicide end up male and female. 
They reported that, and I'm quoting them, more than half of all the individuals who committed suicide had no mental health diagnoses, end quote. So why are these relatively healthy people, mentally speaking? I'm not saying they don't have other issues. People have always had issues, okay? We've always had problems. But why are these, for the most part, mentally healthy folks committing suicide at a rate that is alarmingly high and, and so on? Well, the experts have their opinions. I'm sure some of it's rooted in truth as to why suicides are way up in our country. Let me share with you mine, and we'll close. Just quickly. We could spend several messages just on this topic. I believe that as our nation has become more and more secular, people have turned their backs on God, severing themselves from God, or they simply don't believe in God. Neo-atheism is on the rise among millennials who are the least churched group in the history of our country. As people have bought into the secular mindset, the devil is working very hard to make our society a secular society. Uh, you know, so that you know, people don't look to God, don't think of God, look to themselves uh, or an expert if they have mental problems or things, anyone or anything other than God. And I believe as our country has done that, well, let me just say this. Three fruits of the Spirit, as we just mentioned, are love, joy, and peace. Those are absolutely essential for life. But they only grow in a person's life who is connected by God, to God, by the Holy Spirit through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Anyone not connected to God through His Son, Jesus Christ, has to manufacture fruit. Love, joy, peace, and so on. But it's fake fruit. It may look good. It may get away with fooling people. The Bible says, even in laughter, the heart may ache. Joy may end in grief. And you can put on the good front. But it's not going to take away from the pain. It may look good, but it will not satisfy. Look, what makes a person a true worshiper is that they have been born of the Spirit. In other words, connected with God with the life of God flowing through them, and the fruit bears witness to that. Now, can Christians commit suicide? Yeah, they can. I've known at least one who has. Did her funeral service. When a Christian begins to experience a lack of joy and peace, and we're done, I'll end with this. When a Christian begins to experience a lack of joy and peace, when anxiety and worry starts to grip their heart, and the result is fear and even depression, most likely, likely they're experiencing the negative emotions that comes from not being in fellowship with God. That's why it's so important to stay close to the Lord, especially in these days we're living in. The devil is really hammering. I, am, I, I don't even have to guess. Let me tell you something. Every one of you in this room has had a thought of suicide here or there, maybe some more than others. Everyone in this room has had the thought run through your mind when things have really gotten bad, maybe I'd be better off dead. Maybe I'll just kill myself. Now, you never would go through with it. Most of you. Some would. Satan is always trying to steal, kill, and destroy. And he never takes a break. He never takes a day off. He never goes on vacation. He is always working 
on you as a child of God to turn from God, to walk away from God, to look at your circumstances more than on the God who's who bigger than any circumstance, to drag you away from a heart of worship, which is, happens when you're connected to him and walking in fellowship, the fruit of the Spirit is grown. These are likely the result of not being in close fellowship with God. The answer is very simple. You can read it for yourself. Revelation 2, verses 4 and 5. Understand what's going on. Repent of it. Turn. Get back to the Lord. Recommit your life to Him. Get back into the Word. Get back into church if you haven't been faithful and sporadic. Begin to put on the worship music again in the car. Turn off the secular junk. Stop filling your mind with movies and garbage that is only taking you farther away from God and is not helping you to draw close to Him. The best defense is a good, strong offense. May God give us grace. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have reached us, touched our hearts. By your grace, we have given you our lives. We are connected to you through the Spirit because of our faith in Jesus. And Father, we pray that you would give us grace to draw closer and closer to you every day that your life would continue to flow in and through us in the, in the um, way of fruit. Lord, we just thank you. And ro- Lord, right now, I'm praying for everyone in this room because right now I'm convinced there's one or two at least that is seriously contemplating suicide. Father, be with them. Comfort them. Give them grace to know There is no problem so big, no experience so dire that you cannot overcome and give them victory. The devil has tried to rob them of their hope. Lord, right now cover them with your spirit. Fill them with great hope because your word is full of promises. These are great and precious promises. They give us hope in all kinds of areas. Lord, we just pray for them, especially. The rest of us, Lord, pour your spirit out upon us. Give us, uh, you know, revive our hearts. Make this church alive again uh, in your spirit. Father, we ask all this and that we might be ultimately true worshipers that offer you true worship every day of our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.